Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown Podcast, in which we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers in a list published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining me this week, we've actually got two different guests. There's been a few different places that we've been drawing the guests from. Some of them are experienced podcasters. Some of them are friends of mine. Uh, tonight, we've got a couple of guys from some online comics fan groups. There's Christopher Tyler Short. Hi. So he joins us. He's been involved online. I found him through both the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter groups, as well as the I Like Pink Very Much Lois fan group for people who listen to the Oh Yeah podcast. So welcome aboard, Chris. Are you, are you sure about that? Uh, well, I maybe not. I just checked and I saw that the the guys who do Oh Yeah are also on the mutual friends list. So all Art oh. Baltazar and John Suntra. So I just assumed you were part of that group. Uh, no. No, that's a different group. Okay, so mostly Horizon Labs then, but that is that is the group that our other uh, guest host came in from. That's Matt Piercy. So, hello, Matt. Oh, yeah, man. All right, and this week we are discussing the single largest story <laughs> on the 75 Greatest Marvels list. In fact, if you count it issue by issue... There are seven or 676 issues involved in the complete 75 Greatest Marvel Stories countdown. 165 of those issues are represented this week. That's 24.41%. So we're talking about a quarter of our list. Just a little bit longer than the other ones. Just a touch. The second longest list is coming up in two weeks. Instead of 165 issues, that one's 58. And then later on, we've got another story that's 46 issues. Everything else is 25 and fewer. So for those of you reading along at home, after reading 24.41% of our issues this week, you'll have read a total of 28.70% of the issues that are involved in this countdown. And if that wasn't a big enough hint, this week we are discussing story number 65, Spider-Man's Clone Saga. So in the technical details, the cover dates range from October 1994 to April 1997, although most of these had wrapped up by December 1996. There's just three one-shot issues to wrap things up or add extra information that stretch until April 97. The publication dates range from August 9th, 1994 to February 19th, 1997. The actual issues involved are Amazing Scarlet Spider issues 1 and 2, Amazing Spider-Man issues 394 to 418, Amazing Spider-Man Annual 30, Amazing Spider-Man Super Special number 1, Daredevil 354, Green Goblin number 3, New Warriors 61 through 67, Scarlet Spider 1 and 2, Sensational Spider-Man 0 through 11, Spectacular Spider-Man 217 to 241, Spectacular Spider-Man Super Special, Adjectiveless Spider-Man 51 through 75, Spider-Man Holiday Special, Spider-Man Super Special, Spider-Man Team-Up 1 through 5, Spider-Man Unlimited 7 through 14, Spider-Man, 101 Ways to End the Clone Saga. Spider-Man, Dead Man's Hand. Spider-Man, Funeral for an Octopus, 1 through 3. Spider-Man, Maximum Clonage Alpha. Spider-Man, Maximum Clonage Omega. Spider-Man, Redemption, 1 through 4. Spider-Man, Revelations. Spider-Man, The Clone Journal. Spider-Man, The Final Adventure, 1 through 4. Spider-Man, The Jackal Files, number 1. Spider-Man, The Lost Years, 1 through 3. Spider-Man, The Osborne Journal. Spider-Man, The Parker Years. Spider-Man Punisher Family Plot 1 and 2, Venom Super Special number 1, Venom Along Came a Spider 1 through 4, Web of Scarlet Spider 1 and 2, Web of Spider-Man 117 to 129, Web of Spider-Man Super Special and Wizard Mini Comic number 3. So, when you've got a list of issues that long, you're going to have a few creators. <laughs> so the writers, Mark Bernardo, Carl Ballers, Tom Brevoort, Tom DeFalco, J.M. DeBatias, Todd DeZago, Joe Edkin, James Felder, Ron Friend, Steve Gerber, Glenn Greenberg, Larry Hama, Glenn Herdling, Dan Jurgens, Mike Kenterovich, Terry Cavanaugh, Carl Kiesel, Mike Lackey, Stan Lee, Tom Lyle, Howard Mackey, David McElhaney, Fabian Nicieza, George Perez, Tom Pyre, Derek Robertson, Evan Skolnick, Roger Stern, and Mark Wade. Pencilers, Mark Bagley, Michael Baer, Joe Bennett, Pat Broderick, Elliot Brown, Robert Brown, Mark Buckingham, Roy Berndine, Sal Buscema, Stephen Butler, Guy Dorian, Ron Friends, James Fry, Chris Gardner, Ron Garney, Steve Geiger, Dick Giordano, Phil Gosler, Tom Grinberg, Tom Grummet, Mike Harris, Ben Herrera, Dave Hoover, Kyle Hotz, 
Stuart Johnston, Dan Jurgens, Gil Kane, Paris Caronos, Ken Lashley, Dan Lawless, Rick Leonardi, Steve Lytle, Ron Lim, Tom Lyle, Kevin McGuire, Mike Manley, Scott McDaniel, Brandon McKinney, Bob McLeod, Sean McManus, Angel Medina, Tom Morgan, Kerry Nord, Pat Olaf, George Perez, Jordan Raskin, Derek Robertson, Roger Robinson, John Romita Jr., Luke Ross, Alex Saviak, Liam Sharp, Steve Scroce, Todd Smith, Claude St. Alban, Joe St. Pierre, Kevin West, Mike Waringo, Mike Zeck, and number 60 is Patrick Zercher. We have 69 inkers, Greg Adams, Keith Aiken, Jeff Albrecht, Jim Amish, Bill Anderson, Michael Baer, Brett Breeding, Mark Buckingham, Roy Burdine, Sal Busima, Steve Butler, Ralph Cabrera, Harry Candelario, Richard Case, Mike Christian, Tom Christopher, Hector Colazzo, Salim Crawford, Sam De La Rosa, Tim Dazon, Randy Emberlin, Mark Farmer, Derek Fisher, Fred Fredericks, Armando Gill, Dick Giordano, Scott Hanna, Kyle Hotz, Dalton Hudson, Chris Ivey, Klaus Jansen, Paris Karanos, Scott Kalblish, Bud La Rosa, Larry Malstadt, Scott McDaniel, Mark McKenna, Bob McLeod, Sean McManus, Al Milgram, Steve Montano, Jason Moore, Jerome K. Moore, John Nyberg, Tom Palmer, Jimmy Palmiotti, Andrew Peepoy, George Perez, Joe Pimentel, Rodney Ramos, Jordan Raskin, Robin Riggs, Matt Robertson, Roger Robinson, John Armita Sr., Joe Rubenstein, Vince Russell, Matt Ryan, Liam Sharp, Bill Senkovich, Cam Smith, John Stanissi, Arnie Starr, Roxanne Starr, Art Thiebert, Tim Tuhoy, Tom Wegerzin, Al Williamson, and finally Mike Witherby. So we've only got 24 colorists to thank here. Joan Andriani, Paul Becton, Mark Bernardo, Digital Chameleon, Food Hammer, Graphic Colorworks, Heroic Age, John Kellys, Ian Lachlan, Malibu Hughes, Salvador Mancha, Chris Matthews, Glynis Oliver, Clem Robbins, Joe Roses, Max or Christy Scheel, Bob Sharon, Tom Smith, Kevin Tinsley, Adam Walenta, Chia Chang Wang, Wolfpack, Gregory Wright, and Nell Yomtov. 24 letterers including Liz Agrafitas, Jonathan Babcock, Janice Chang, Comic Craft, John Costanza, Sue Crespi, Albert Deschen, Steve Dutro, Chris Iliopoulos, Mike Higgins, Loretta Curl, Ken Lopez, Emerson Miranda, Jack Morelli, NJQ, Jim Novak, Bill Oakley, Jeff Powell, Clem Robbins, Joe Rosen, Sam Rosen, Dave Sharp, Richard Starkings, and Caroline Wells. The 11 editors were Mark Bernardo, Tom Brevoort, Bob Budiansky, Chris Cooper, Danny Fingeroth, Glenn Greenberg, Matt Hicks, Ralph Macchio, Sarah Mossoff, Mark Powers, and Eric Rain. This storyline started under Editor-in-Chief Bob Budiansky. At the time, there were five Editors-in-Chief for Marvel. He was the one in charge of the Spider-Man group. There was also an X-Men group, an Avengers group, and so forth. And it finished under Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris. So after what was, what, about 10 minutes worth of technical details and introductions? <laughs> we'll drop in a quick promo, and then we'll come back to discuss the actual series itself. Whoa! I don't think I even want to hear your story. All of you must hear the Scarlet Spider story. The Spider-Man clone saga. It sends chills down some people's spines because, quite frankly, there's a lot of people out there that think it's one of the worst Spider-Man stories of all time. But it has its fans. I'm one of those fans. You see, back in 1994, Batman had been broken, Superman had been killed, and Marvel was scrambling to bring about a change in Spider-Man. A radical idea from a guy named Terry Kavanaugh launched a two-year-long era of Spider-Man called the Clone Saga. From 1994 through 1996, Spider-Man had literally his identity taken from him, replaced, was brought back, and oh, by the way, his arch-nemesis from the 70s who was thought long dead, ah, he's back alive. It was a seismic watershed moment for Spider-Man. But throughout all the turmoil that was going on on the page... You see, Marvel was going through a time of bankruptcy, and things were starting to get worse before they got better. They tried different and various experiments, such as getting five editors-in-chief involved, and that was an unmitigated disaster. There was a sinking ship at Marvel, and the turmoil was reflected on the page, too. I'm Zach Joyner, a fan, and I'm joined by my panel of hosts... Greg Bashansky, Donovan Morgan Grant, Gerard Delatour, and Joshua Lappin Bertoni. We navigate both the stuff from 94 through 96, as well as modern stuff, such as the 2009 Clone Saga miniseries, the Who Is Ben Riley storyline in Amazing Spider Man during the brand new day era, 
We also do the Scarlet Spider title of 2012, featuring Kane as Scarlet Spider in Houston. We do it all. We also do things such as the 1990s cartoon. We're doing commentaries on that. We offer a wide range of things for you, the listener. We are a part of a network of podcasts called the Spidey-Dude Radio Network. That radio network consists of Clone Saga Chronicles, Spectacular Radio, and Mayday Mondays. We bring about you content that no one else will, and we bring it to you for absolutely free. It's available on Spidey-Dude.com and also on iTunes. So check it out. You'll be glad you did. And if you like it, leave us an email, a voicemail, or an iTunes review. We appreciate you taking time to listen to us. We appreciate you taking time to listen to this promo. We'll see you over there at Spidey-Dude.com. I'm Zach Joyner, the webmaster, as Stan Lee himself would say. Excelsior. And we're back. So now, we're ready to discuss these issues, which have a bit of a reputation. In fact, it's the kind of reputation that caused me to be very surprised that it showed up on the list at all. I absolutely adore, love, and so infatuated with the story. But I myself found myself, I, I was shocked that it wound up on this list as well. I mean, this this story was why I got into Spider-Man. I got into Spider-Man when this was going on right at the beginning, and I was hooked. I loved Spider-Man, so if you give me more Spider-Man, I'm just going to love it more. I was the target audience for this. Yeah, and I can see that. It's had... So it has a reputation for being the worst of the 90s. It's They've also said that this is one of the reasons that the comic market crashed near the end of the 90s and Marvel went into bankruptcy. There's not a lot of evidence to support that. If anything, the problems with the storytelling here are because this came out in an era where marketing was permitted to dictate to editorial. So if marketing thought a story would could sell, they were allowed to tell editorial, you must write this story because we can sell it. Now, things have shifted a bit since then. So it's no longer editorial dictating as it was before, or marketing dictating to editorial. Now it's, you know, editorial bringing things to marketing. Marketing says, yeah, that's the one we can sell. But the story itself is coming from editorial. So what happened in the Clone Saga going through the 90s is that it was extended and became considerably longer than it needed to be. And a lot of that is because it was selling so well. Uh, My own personal exposure to it, I mean, sounds like you guys were there from the beginning. I wasn't. This actually started a little bit after I dropped out of comics for a while. I did come back, obviously, uh, but I dropped out before this started and came back long after it had ended. So my first exposure to this was a pretty unfair exposure. Uh, For a while, Graphic Imaging Technology Corporation had the license to release Marvel stories on CD-ROM and DVD-ROM, and I was buying all of them. So I had that 20-some CD set of Amazing Spider-Man for the first 500 issues, which I upgraded to the DVD-ROM with the first 530-some issues plus the annuals. And at one point, that was one of the ones that I just read the whole thing in chronological order. The problem with doing that is that the CDs and DVDs only include Amazing Spider-Man. And this was an era of four-part stories because Spider-Man had four monthly titles. And you'd get, say, part one in Web of Spider-Man, and part two in Spectacular Spider-Man, and part three in Amazing, and then part four in Adjectiveless. So when you're only reading Amazing, there's a lot of holes in the story. (laughs) So you end up with the first issue. You end up with a couple of the big impact issues, like Amazing 400. But reading in that series, there's some major plot pieces missing. There's scenes where Spider-Man has, or Peter Parker has absolute trust in a character. And then the next issue, he doesn't trust them at all. And it turns out that one was a fairly sudden turnaround. And most jarringly, you get in, this ends, well, we, we should do a little more of a plot synopsis first. But I didn't know the Clone Saga was ending reading the issues until it was over and done with. And the next issue of Amazing Spider-Man made no mention of Bill Ben Riley whatsoever. I had to read six issues in before I found out where Ben Riley had gone. <laughs> it's not surprising, sadly enough. That's that's comics in general though, not even specifically for that time. Yeah, that's it, it was most significant in the nineties. The Superman yeah. books were doing the same thing where they had what they called the triangle numbers. So it actually mark on the covers, this is the order you read this story. I loved those. So easy. <laughs> Is my personal preference, what for the publishing schedule anyway, is more of the brand new day schedule. And say what you will of brand new day and the one more day story arc that brought into it. I like the fact that they didn't pretend they were doing three different Spider-Man books with one story going through all three. They just said, no, you're getting three issues of Amazing every month. And that is our story. That's the way I 
I like to see it handled where you it's got its ups and downs. I mean, the nice thing about having three different Spider-Man books is they tend to have three different tones and three different styles. So if you're looking for something a little bit different than the mainstream, you could find it. Whether you're reading Jay Str- or Joe Straczynski's Amazing Spider-Man tied into all the continuity and Peter David's Friendly Neighborhood or at the same time and River Jagar Sakasa's Sensational, those three had very different tones. But with Brand New Day, I mean, the upside is it's easy to follow the story. The downside is that you could go from one creative team you really like into another creative team you don't care for into a different one. So if you're not really picking and choosing which issues you're buying with solicits or risking your comic shop selling out of them, it's a bit of a hit to follow. And of course, it costs more in the month if you're only hoping to get one Spider-Man book in the month. So this one, at least when this Clone Saga launched, it was selling like gangbusters, which is why it got extended. Apparently, there was a bit of a sales dip in the middle. And we'll get to that. We should we'll get to that in the recap when we talk about the switch and editor in chiefs and so forth. And then the the sales did start to come up at the end, at least proportionate to the rest of the comics industry. If you look at Spider-Man numbers as absolute numbers during this, you see it starts off growing and tapers off and never recovers. But if you look at how these books sold relative to the other books on the market at the time, you see that there is a bit of a dip in the middle. But by the time we get through it, and Ben Riley is the Spider-Man for a period, Spider-Man was losing ground, but not nearly as quickly as a lot of the other titles on the market. So it was actually one of the better-selling titles throughout this, which is not the way a lot of people like to paint the history. So we do like to talk about the significance and the plot synopsis. Okay, this is 165 issues, so we're going to do a broad plot synopsis. (laughs) This will not be an issue-by-issue breakdown. Page 1, panel 1. (laughs) <laughs> well i'm the one that has to edit it so <laughs> yeah prize all you listeners marvel 75 podcast is turned into clone saga podcast yes yeah, so uh this episode 65 here is going to be nine hours long you <laughs> know <laughs> in broad strokes this was picking up a plot thread the original concept of this was to clean up a plot thread that had been floating around for about 250 issues the introduction of clones to Spider-Man happened in issues 148, 149, and 150 of Amazing Spider-Man. And in that one, you find out that Peter and Gwen Stacy, his former lover who'd been killed by the Green Goblin, when they were in class with a particular biology prof, he was in love with Gwen. And he cloned her because he was in love with her and, you know, the real Gwen had gone and died. And the, the genetic sample that he took had material from two of them, so he just cloned two people. Because apparently he's got the technology to clone but not the technology to count X chromosomes or check for Y chromosomes. <laughs> so he ended up cloning both Gwen and Peter Parker as Spider-Man. Peter fought that clone. The clone died. Apparently he was unstable because Peter didn't hit him hard enough to kill him, but he died anyway. So Peter buried him in a smokestack so there wouldn't be questions about why there was a dead Spider-Man and another Spider-Man running around. And even though the art was very clear about which was which, he left with some doubts about whether he was the original or the clone. And when he thought of Mary Jane and figured, ah, When I was cloned, I was not in love with Mary Jane. The feelings I have for her now would not have been felt by the clone. I'm me. But when that story was done, there was still a clone of Gwen Stacy wandering around in the Marvel Universe. So the original concept behind this story was to clean up that plot thread and take care of Gwen Stacy, either by giving her a permanent happy ending off to the side or by killing her. It would have been one or the other. 165 issues later... (laughs) That Gwen Stacy clone is still floating around out there. <laughs> that she is introduced as a character, but that part doesn't actually get cleaned up. Because as we said, it was selling very well, and marketing said, stretch it, and stretch it, and stretch it. And this was originally supposed to end uh, Amazing number 400, which, if you look at the trade paperback list, is only number 3 of 11. So, <laughs> that shows you how far they stretched it. Yeah, they, they stretched it out significantly. And it's it starts with the clone, who apparently died in the smokestack coming back into Peter and Mary Jane's life. So he survived. He's been living as Ben Riley, Ben after his uncle Ben, which is actually Peter's middle name as well, and Riley as, you know, which here is established as Aunt May's maiden name. And that's why he chose Riley. Even though during the back in black segment of Spider-Man under Joe Straczynski, there's an error where they say that her maiden name is Fitzgerald. I've been told that was fixed for the trades and changed to Riley, but I didn't collect that in trades. I got the issue that says Fitzgerald. I never knew that. That's interesting. Yeah, so apparently uh, Jim Michael Straczynski, you know, the guy who's known for for researching in great detail 
I'm going through a lot, somehow missed that kind of big piece of the Clone Saga there. Which is entirely possible, because there's a lot here, and if you're doing your research afterwards and weren't reading at the time, going by reputation alone, I could see why you wouldn't go back to it, because there's, there's enough people out there who said they don't remember it fondly that you may not want to refer to that story again. But it, if you're wondering who is Ben Riley, if you're wondering where did Clone Saga come from, who's this other guy, he calls himself Ben Riley. why does he call himself Ben Riley? you know, that's my first question. So every single time I explain what the Clone Saga is, I end up explaining why he's called Ben Riley to somebody. So you'd think somebody who works at Marvel would, would have caught that. Yeah, I'm surprised it made it through editorial, because I think it was even Tom Brevoort editing then, and he's usually very good with stuff like that. But yeah, somehow it slipped through. But like I said, apparently it got fixed for the trade. Well, there was some other stuff that Straczynski uh, did that slipped through, some Gwen Stacy uh, unsavoriness, shall we say, and just kind of leave it at that. But anyway, back to the Clone Saga, because we got enough to cover there. All right. So the broad strokes are that Ben comes back, and a bunch of mysterious and incredibly powerful figures, which were common in the 90s, also show up and start messing around with the characters. Ben starts to build his own supporting cast with Seward Trainer, who was helping him out while he was sort of living the life of a hermit. In the course of events, as we meet the new Dr. Octopus, Otto Octavius apparently dies during the course of the storyline, and his previously unheard of protege, who is Seward Trainer's daughter, takes over the mantle of Dr. Octopus and becomes a major villain. We see Ben initially take on the persona of Scarlet Spider, named by Daily Bugle reporter Ken Ellis, and he comes up with a bunch of new tech, like impact webbing. And going back, a lot of what this turned into was editorial recognized it as an opportunity to have a single Spider-Man anymore, which frees up some of the storytelling options, and have a younger Spider-Man that could go back and reset it so he would have been less experienced as he was back around the issue 150 mark, as opposed to where he was around issue 350, so they could start telling some classic stories if they could somehow put the clone front and center as the new Spider-Man. Less experienced and also single. I mean, that's a problem yeah. they've dealt with, you know, quote-unquote a problem that they've dealt with for decades. Yeah, that's something that's been dealt with. Well, you got, if you've been listening all along, you've heard that discussion of Amazing Spider-Man Annual 21 already. But yeah, that's where that one comes out. So we've that's what happens. About halfway through, we learn that, no, uh, Peter is the clone, and Ben was the original, and they did get mixed up. And in these pages, it's very clear who is who. So Seward Trainer, Ben Riley, and Peter Parker all check each other's work and all draw the same conclusion. That Peter's the clone, Ben's the real deal. Peter ends up losing his powers and loving happily ever after with pregnant Mary Jane, while Ben takes over as Spider-Man with a new supporting cast. And Ben lasts as Spider-Man for about a year before we find out that, oh, that was a pack of lies. Norman Osborn was manipulating the whole thing from the start, and Peter is the real deal. And this whole thing was just Norman screwing with him from a distance, because he's not dead. That, that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> the plot-wise, that is. Yeah, that's a very executive summary. With Ben in the mantle for a year, with 14 months worth of comics leading up to that, 165 issues. There's a lot of other stories going along as we go through this. A lot of them on the side. Ben actually has some very good adventures as Spider-Man. I actually like Ben as Spider-Man quite a bit. Ben Riley is a worthwhile character. I get negative fan backlash for it i would have changed a couple of things and i don't think it would have taken much to tweak this for this era to be more fondly remembered than it is well if you don't mind getting into that right now what what would you change what is it that you don't like or not that you don't like but that you would change the the two things that would have been that we could have changed one i never would have claimed that ben was the original what we've got in this is peter wrestling with his responsibility whether he's more responsible for his wife and kid or the world at large. I think bringing the storyline where his powers fail anyway, say that, yeah, Ben is the clone and accept that he's the clone, but when you've got a powerless Peter Parker with a pregnant wife, just have him pass off the mantle anyway. Say, okay, Ben, I can't do this now. You can. Here you go. It's in your hands. So Ben still becomes the Spider-Man, but you're not telling fans, those last 20 years of comics that you've been collecting, yeah, the wrong guy. <laughs> See, the thing is, my thought on that, I've, I've heard that exact same argument. It's always really bugged me. It changes nothing, especially at that time. They thought it was a 100% perfect clone. So basically, it's like if you just split Peter Parker in half, there's two of them. One maybe has one more cell from the original than the other. But we're going to consider, you know, that's not what actually happened. But in their minds, it was a pretty, pretty near perfect clone. So why does it, why does it matter? Because... 
the Peter Parker we've been following has the exact same DNA and the exact same memories, and he is the one we've been following. It just so happens that this one slight detail is changed, but it really doesn't change anything. And in my mind, I thought it was just the only thing it did was make Ben feel a little bit better. Yeah, and that's one. Like I said, a lot of fans rejected it, and they're the fan results or the arguments I've seen are, well, you just invalidated 20 years worth of my collection. It's not a position I agree with, but I think if they'd made that tweak to the story, uh, the, the first of two tweaks, then the fans would have accepted it because they're not saying, yeah, those 20 years worth of stories don't matter, right? It all still happened. It all still matters. But instead of replacing the character, it becomes more of the legacy character, like, you know, Kyle Rayner taking over from Jon Stewart or Hal Jordan on the DC side of things. Although, like you said, I mean, yeah, the way they represent the cloning here, the only significant difference between them is the life experiences from the point that the clone was formed on. And that's it. Everything that happened before, they were totally indistinguishable. And then the second tweak I would make, in the end, Ben Riley dies, sort of sacrificing himself for Peter. And the way the story is told, you need that to definitively say that Ben was the clone, because he, then he dissolves as the clones do. If that part's never in question, Ben could have lived. You could have put Spider-Man or Peter back as the main Spider-Man, and Ben could have been out there, you know, returned as the Scarlet Spider or doing something else, and you'd have another viable character that his fans could still follow when the storyline was done. And go back to the way it was in the early parts of this, where you've got the Scarlet Spider books and the Peter Parker books. So your, your and, second change would be to not kill him? Is that what you were saying? Yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that one more. Yeah, like I said, it's... You needed to do it the way they told it here to definitively say, oh, look, the way he dies, he is absolutely the clone. Absolutely. But if he's, if there was, if that part was never cast in doubt in the course of the original story, why would you have to do that? It's true. And I know we haven't brought up Kane yet, and I'm sure we will. You know, 20 years later, they brought him back, moved him to Texas in Houston and had adventures. I would have loved Finn Riley to stick around, have hobo adventures you know, all over America, mm-hmm. like, that would have been a perfect book for me. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, it's at the time of this recording, Spider-Verse is going on, although I admit I am behind in reading every single title except Daredevil right now, partly because I've been reading 165 issues of Clone Saga for this podcast, and partly because I'm reading 58 issues of New Mutants for the episode 63 in a couple of weeks. But, yeah, it's it wouldn't surprise me if between that and the upcoming Secret Wars that Marvel decides to put a viable Ben Riley from one of these universes smack dab in the middle of the universe we're following and keep Ben going because as you said Kane came back not just as Scarlet Spider in Texas but following that miniseries or that series which ended early he was part of the uh, New Warriors run that 12 issue series by uh, I want to say Kyle Yost writing it that was quite good he was one of the founding members of the new team of New New Warriors yes spoilers uh, for Scarlet Spider number three in Spider-Verse. Uh, unfortunately, Ben Rally does not make it. At least the Ben Rally from another universe. That means nothing to Marvel. They'll they'll figure out something, hopefully. So, yeah, that one, they, they could have survived because it's, as I said, it does have some 90s bloat, partly because this is also an era when a lot of the subsidiary sales and a lot of the way the artists drew their paychecks was by doing commissioned artwork and selling the original art pages. So these are stories that you know, there's not as many panels per page on average then as there is now, because that was just the style at the time, so that people could sell more artwork. So, you know, people talk about decompressed storytelling now, but four issues of the 90s could be two issues today, just because of the way that's structured. So, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's not... There, there's some truly enjoyable issues here. This is not the the monster that its predominant reputation was. I'm surprised there's enough people willing to step forward and support it that it landed on the list. And I yeah, I think part of the reason it made the top 75 might be because those who do like it feel compelled to vote for it as the underdog because they think it's unfairly maligned. And I would say that, yeah, it's, it, like I said, it's not perfect, but it's not nearly as bad as the reputation would indicate. Yeah. And also, like the other stories you've done so far, if not as entertaining, they do have quite an impact. Ben Riley. You know, if you watched uh, the Spider-Man cartoon from the 90s, you saw the the series finale with different universe Spider-Man, and Ben Riley was one of them. And then Spider-Man uh, Unlimited was the other cartoon, I think. And uh, it wasn't Ben Riley, but they took elements from his uh, his different web shooters. And even 
Peter Parker took elements from his web shooters and things like that. So it did have quite an impact. Yeah, it did. It was, I mean, this story here, it ended Mary Jane's pregnancy. They killed Aunt May and they brought back the Green Goblin. So yeah. even if you ignore everything that happened with Ben Riley in the course of this and just read the books before and after, you know, for example, this starts, the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man here is 394. And the last issue of Amazing Spider-Man here is 418. If you were reading Amazing Spider-Man up to 393 and then jumped ahead to 419 to skip everything that's part of the Clone Saga and just go from the status quo immediately before to the status quo immediately after, there is absolutely no question that you're going to recognize a major shift in the books. I mean, and that's without them even mentioning Ben Riley for the first six issues, like you said. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know Ben Riley was dead for six months worth of issues. It's like, oh, that's how he died. Noble sacrifice. Okay. Against who? We went from my brother just died to not ever mentioning him ever. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of that was fairly sudden. And I mean, I talked about how characters go from mistrust to trust or trust to mistrust. That's because there's the scene where Peter, Ben and Seward Trainer all check each other's work and all come out of it saying, okay, this is definitely who's the clone and who is not. And then the very first issue that has Bob Harris as editor-in-chief, instead of Bob Budiansky, Peter Parker suddenly does not trust Seward Trainer, and he wants a second opinion on everything. And it starts to build from there. That that really shook me as I was reading it myself. I was just like, whoa, okay, Peter. But when I was reading it, I had read, you know, like you had said, uh, the original Clone Saga, the 147 through 151, around there. And around that time, Spider-Man was sort of a jerk occasionally. Like, I have... I took uh, screenshots as I was reading it at the time. It was 2012 is actually when I read it. And I have a screenshot of Peter Parker at a, at a book signing. And the Peter Parker's talking. He said, the new old costume is a lot easier to capture on film than the old new costume. And this kid says, I think it stinks. He said, go away, kid. You bother me. And it's just things like that, like sort of jerk Peter Parker here and there. And so it, I, I wrote it off as something like that. Like, oh, I guess... He's going through something. And then actually, another pretty amazing thing that happened in the story was Peter Parker tried to kill Mary Jane. He got mind-controlled, sort of, and became insane and tried to kill Mary Jane. And that was that was pretty incredible. Yeah, it's Hank Pym hits his wife and gives her a black eye because an artist misinterprets a writer, and that becomes the only thing he's known for. Whereas Peter, quite literally and consciously, throws his pregnant wife across the room and it's largely forgotten by the fans. Yeah. I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about this, but that was that was a big thing that hit me. It was no mind control, nothing like that. It was just him angry in the moment whenever he gets the test results. I mean, I'm sure whenever it was written, it was written like, you know, he shrugs her off and she maybe flies back. But when it's drawn, it's a closed fist, backhand, she's across the room. Yeah, it is drawn. I mean, just like Hank hitting hitting Janet, it may have been escalated by the artist compared to what the original script has. Because if you listen to Word Balloon, you'll find out when and the name of the original artist on the Hank Pym story is blanking for me now. I should have looked it up in preparation for this. But what he wanted was just a dismissive wave where Hank just kind of waved his hand over his shoulder, not looking, and accidentally hit her and gave her the bruise without even realizing it. As opposed to the backhanded swat that was actually drawn in which completely changes the way people would react to that character, because that's the point where it's no longer an accident. It may have been the same here. I mean, there's some talk about it. It seemed almost retroactive when they decided, no, he was being influenced by something else that was just bringing his emotions to a boil and pushing them beyond his control. But yeah, it's not It's not the same. This is a case where Peter quite literally attacked Mary Jane, and the fans forget it. I wonder if part of that is because, broadly speaking, Peter Parker had so many more defining stories and was just generally better regarded than Hank Pym and had more fans than Hank Pym did, right? If you want to say, give me the defining Peter Parker story, there will be dozens that show up on the list above the moment where he hit Mary Jane. If you ask for the defining Hank Pym story, in a lot of ways, that was the moment that defined him. He didn't have the same richness in the history to draw from. But I think you're exactly right. Yeah, because that's... And that's a moment you could argue whether or not it should have been written in the first place or whether or not it should have been drawn that way. But it happened, and by and large, people don't remember it. Well, hey, since one more day, who would remember him hitting his pregnant wife? Because she was never pregnant. Or they were, she was never his wife. 
It still happened. They just weren't married. Okay, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, no, this was... Like I said, there, there's a lot here that was enjoyable. Now, there's chunks that could be skipped. Maximum clonage, I felt, was over the top. Oh, maximum clonage was amazing. I cannot wait to hopefully see Spider-Side and uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, the current Spider-Man. <sighs> oh, in the Spider-Verse event? Spider-Verse, thank you. I'm so bad with words right now. Yes, the Spider-Verse event. That's, that's the one Spider-Man that I'm hoping will show up, but actually has a chance to not show up. Yeah, it's Spider-Side has potential, but when you're... They've already got Maximum Carnage, and then they take the Maximum Clonage story mostly to riff on that title, and just shove a bunch of clones in, because we've got Kane, we've got Ben Riley. Uh, Kane, we should probably go into more detail. Anything as complicated as cloning, especially when it's the first time it's been done, you're going to make mistakes. That was one of the criticisms of The Lost World that Michael Crichton addressed, or Jurassic Park that Michael Crichton addressed in The Lost World. They said, oh no, the island you see in, in Jurassic Park, that's the fake island where they bring the embryos when they know they're going to survive, and they find the real island with more dinosaurs where all the mistakes happened and were still floating around. Kane was one of the earlier clones, and that was a mistake. So he started off well, but went through a lot of deterioration that Increased his strength, it increased his powers, but it also deformed him and shortened his lifespan. Well, supposedly shortened his lifespan, he's still around today. <laughs> he is, but how much time has elapsed? The Marvel sliding time scale. Last I heard, it was actually Axel Alonso talking about how, you know, the Fantastic Four number one is like 12 or 13 years ago in Marvel time. So they've got that sliding shift to explain why, you know, Peter's not 80 years old. Which means, especially to the American audiences, the entirety of the Marvel Universe, as we know it, since the publication of Fantastic Four number one, took place after 9-11. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is so bizarre. Yeah, and it really makes that uh, Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, Issue 36, seem a little odd. Which one is that? That was the 9-11 tribute issue. Oh, yeah. Good point. We talked about how this Clone Saga story starts about 240 issues after the previous one, which is, what, 20 years in publication time? Yeah. And yet it's made crystal clear to the, that from the character's perspective, only five years have gone by. Yeah. Right? It happens. Pop culture references happen. I mean, right around the time of the original Clone Saga, Daredevil was telling people to go home and watch Kojak. Oh, there are so many Hootie and the Blowfish references in this book. I stopped counting. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of those. And I suppose now, you know, depending on where the time scales are at, you could say that, oh, no, Matt Murdock was referring to the Ving Rhames Kojak. But that seems unlikely. So I, given the option between an 80-year-old Spider-Man and just being, just pretending that it all happened last few years and rewrite the details in your head for the pop culture references as needed, I'll just say, yeah, it was some vague number of years ago and rewrite the pop culture references in my head. Yeah. Or, yeah. or you could do the DC solution and just reboot every, you know, 5 to 25 years. Oh, God, no. See, I think that's the beautiful thing about comics is that you shouldn't have to worry about any of this. Your actors aren't going to get old. I mean... Yeah. It's just something I never question. Magneto's coming up to, what, almost 100 years old pretty soon? I never oh, questioned yeah. it. Never bothered me. But he's been de-aged and re-aged so many times that why even fool with it? Well, that's that's what I was trying to say earlier, is that I'm okay with it just being messed up. What bothers me is when they say, whether it's in the comics or just, like I think you said, Axel Alonso said, uh, just somebody explicitly stating, this all actually happened 12 years ago. Not, you know, like, you can say that with uh, with the Clone Saga, like, that thing happened five years ago. But saying this is when the characters started, that's really difficult for me to wrap my mind around. Yeah, and for something like the Clone Saga, you need some kind of date to pin on it because you do need, it's a fundamental piece of Ben Riley's character that he's been living this nomadic lifestyle. Yeah. Right. That's, and the duration that you have there goes a long way to establishing why Peter and Mary Jane are so surprised that he's back, why he's had a hard time adjusting, why he's able to accept his existence as a clone. He needs a lengthy time frame, and five years is both specific and vague enough that we can run with it. Absolutely. Right. I mean, it just it gives us a little more freedom to follow things, and that's all we really need is, you know, I don't need to be absolutely rigorous. I don't need to understand how Bart Simpson, the 10-year-old boy, has experienced 20 Halloweens and 20 Christmases while being a 10-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's if The Simpsons aged in real life, Bart would be 35. 
Maggie would be in college. She'd be in her 20s. Homer and Marge would be, what, about 60-ish? When you've got animation or anything else that's drawn as a character like this, and we are creating their likeness instead of catch them as an actor in some way, you've got the wiggle room for this. I mean, just go back to even Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories and figure out how much time elapsed between the earliest dated story and the last dated story, and read the descriptions of Sherlock Holmes, which do not involve any changes of any kind. So apparently he ran like 25 years without aging. Sure. Right? I mean, they've got specific dates assigned to it, so we've got time frames, and we can pin it down in one way or another, even though it's a little bit inconsistent, because no internet, Arthur Conan Doyle could make mistakes and not get inundated about it, you know, such as changing Watson's first name. But, you know, you've got some sort of framework to hang it on. So sort of guided back to Clone Saga, I feel like a character that we also need to discuss is the Jackal. Part of the reason why I want to bring him up right now is because uh, one of my screenshots I took is uh, the origin of his name, which I thought was just horribly awful and just pathetic, both in sense of character and I hate to say this, but writing. He's talking about how he killed his assistant, Serba, and he... Th- this is... Okay, so... <laughs> large large part about clone saga is the unreliable narrator in a sense maybe not narrator but everything we think we know changes constantly as far as we know for a while the jackal killed his assistant and that's sort of what turned him into this super villain so he says convincing myself i hadn't killed serba the murderer was someone else which of course he was and he shows him in a dark room and the door cracked people walking by the door cracked saying, by far the most cowardly of all predators is the jackal, a member of the canine species who... And then we've got a little thought bubble that says, the jackal, that's who killed Serva, not me, the jackal. So he's just one tiny statement that seems irrelevant to anything. I don't know why anybody would be having that conversation, but somebody's saying that the jackal is the most cowardly of all predators. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's me. That, that It wasn't me, actually, it was the jackal. And that's where the jackal came from. Yeah. It's goofy, but I'll put it maybe a notch or two above a random bat flying in through your studio window. (laughs) (laughs) You can't argue there. I mean, it's not without precedent. And they did establish that his psychological break happened earlier when they were, again, rewriting the Jackal's history and making him the sort of understudy or assistant to the high evolutionary before Herbert Edgar Wyndham was the high evolutionary. Yeah. Another character featured in the story. Yep. Or at the end, when they suddenly reveal that the whole time he'd been working for Norman Osborn, and they were even partners, and he, <laughs> yeah, yep. it's even had, a, I think it was a bit of a hand in creating the Goblin formula. Like, yeah. there was just so many different chefs, because I guess when Bob Harris took over, the first thing he did was Bob bump Bob Budiansky out of the editor-in-chief role for the Spider-Man books, when they had the multiple editors-in-chief, although he still edited some of the individual books and then turned to Ralph Macchio and put him in charge of the Spider-Man group with the orders, quote, go forth and fix. Because at this point, the Spider-Man sales were down. Because it did start off as a mystery, and when they extended it in the middle, that mystery got lost, and it wasn't addressed for several months, so I could see why people would lose interest and think they weren't coming back to it, because that did happen in a number of the books, especially in some of the other Marvel offices, such as the X-Men office at the time. There's just a lot of drop plot threads. So I could see why people would be concerned that they weren't coming back to it, And even when they did come back, it seemed to be in a different direction than they initially thought because it actually was, probably because some characters were no longer available and whatnot after it got extended. So, I mean, this 11-volume set, the first five volumes, which put Ben as Spider-Man, I think had it been a three-volume set, you know, even if they'd ended issue 400, the death of Aunt May, if they put in Spider-Man losing his powers and passed the torch on to Ben at that point, I think fans would have accepted it. And, you know, the 400 milestone... People like those nice big numbers as milestones to move on and tell a new story. Yeah. And it, it could have worked right there. So there's actually a lot of pretty viable stuff. Like I said, I'm surprised that there's enough people who wanted to stand up and be counted that it's hit number 65 on the list. I'm still not sure that it would have made my own 75 Marvel Stories list if I were to just come up with one from scratch, which I really should do by the time I'm done this series. <laughs> You know, I've heard a lot of people refer to this as the worst Marvel story of all time. Oh, that hurt. Yeah, this isn't even the worst Spider-Man story of all time, not by a long shot. No. It has its ups and downs, 
And the downs can get pretty low, but the, the highs can get pretty high as well. And I think it's definitely more hit than miss, at least in my opinion. You have so many villains, so many... You, it, it was the original Spider-Verse. There, there was another Spider-Man like that alone is enough to, to keep my attention for 300 issues. Yeah, I mean, it's this is not, in terms of that basic structure and the aspects of the story that people were complaining about, it's not really that fundamentally different from the superior Spider-Man, right? You've got a replacement Spider-Man who's doing things in a different way. The big difference I see between Superior and this is with Superior, they didn't pretend that that was the real Spider-Man the whole time. That was the secret, is the readers knew he wasn't the real Spider-Man, but most of the characters didn't when that storyline kicked off. And that's it, and that the Superior Spider-Man, and the story that kicked that off, made it onto the list as well. So I'm going to be talking about that with John M. Wilson in a few weeks. Yeah, this there is a concept here, and it wouldn't have taken a lot, I think, to to have turned it into the the start of a, a legacy character in the Marvel universe. Because that is one thing. Generally speaking, I'm a Marvel zombie more so than a DC fanboy. But if you ask me something that DC has that Marvel lacks by and large, it's the legacy characters. Which legacy characters does Marvel have? Ant Man. Yeah, the one and only. <laughs> and we've already talked about his uh, milestone, shall we say? Yeah, that's the Hank Pym milestone. Scott Lang's milestone, well, he was introduced as a petty criminal and grew into it. And then there's, of course, Eric O'Grady as Ant-Man, who's... Yeah, I think he had a, a pretty good run under Kirkman. And then it was a nice run under the Secret Avengers before he got stepped on. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the last we saw of Eric O'Grady. He was actually on the bottom of someone's shoe in a parallel universe. Take that, Robert Kirkman. <laughs> All right, so I think we've covered just about everything here, aside from well, we need feedback from you guys on why you think it landed at this point in the tournament, and then see if there's any deeper meanings to explore. So does anyone want to start with where you would put it on the tournament if it was, or in this list, if it were up to you? I think it's in a good spot. It is more hit, and, hit than miss with me. I mean, I was this is when I got into Spider-Man. So even rereading it, there was still a lot there that I could latch on to. I love the Scarlet Spider costume. That's like my favorite. Still love it to this day. I think Kane is an even better character uh, going back and looking at it. Just the scope of it. If this had happened today, it put like Jeff Johns and Dan Slott on it. Just two writers. It would have been the best story Spider-Man yeah. had. Like, I mean, they would be huge now. But you have, I mean, how many writers, pencilers, editors? It's It's too many cooks. But still more hit than miss. I would say that it would actually be in the top five for me. I love the Clone Saga. My history with the Clone Saga was most of what I've read in comic books when it comes to at least reading chronologically rather than when I was a kid, I would go to the store, go to Hastings with, with my dad, brother. We'd buy comic books and I'd always get like the most colorful looking one. I'd get Sonic the Hedgehog a lot and I'd get Incredible Hulk and Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. And I would never actually read, even though I, I kept buying them up until, you know, I was age nine. I, I could have easily been reading them. I started when I could read them. But it was just so interesting to me. It's just look at all the pictures. I just wanted to get through the story, get to the end, and start on the next one. And so when I decided I want to actually read full stories, I was in high school. And I was poor, of course, so I hate to admit it, but I downloaded comics. and. I downloaded this huge torrent called Marvel Major Event Chronology. And it's just major events in chronological order. So I would, I'd go through them. And it was actually number 41 on this list. And that was sort of what I was hoping to get to this entire time. Because everything up to that point, Marvel event-wise, at least on this list, was thing like Secret Wars, Dark Phoenix Saga, Operation Galactic Storm. You know, not not things that are really centered around Spider-Man. So I knew that this one was coming. I finally got to it. And my collection is 230 comics, I think. It's 229 comics. And so I was like, okay, here we go. I'm getting into Spider-Man chronologically from 94 or 92. Is it 92 to 94? 94 to 96, isn't it? Yeah, this one, the bulk of it is 94 to 96 with three addendums. So 101 ways to end the Clone Saga, which is... Actually, what the people in the Marvel offices arguing about how to end the Clone Saga. Yeah. There's the Osborne Journal, which is going in and filling in more details about how Norman Osborne did this, which would have been 
more necessary at the time than it is now because what's included in the, the trade paperbacks is kind of the director's cut version of the last issue in that story arc. So it has more explanation than the original published version did. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. The preface to it says it's got something like 11 additional pages. Okay. So it was published in this form back in the 90s as well. It came out later with the original creative team, which also tells you it wasn't a sales disaster, as people say, because they decided it was worthwhile to commission extra pages and republish a book. Yeah. And that's coming into early 1997 when it was late 1997 when Marvel went into bankruptcy. So they weren't in a great position there. So as we said, it it wasn't selling like it was in the first month of this, but there's not a comic in the market that was. And it held its numbers longer and better than most of its contemporaries. And then the third and final issue published in 97 is Spider-Man Dead Man's Hand, which is more of a fallout. So with that one, Ben Riley is dead the whole time. Peter Parker's in the Spider-Man suit. It's just almost like the last story for some of the villains introduced during the Clone Saga that just haven't generally been revisited. Like Carrion, mainly. Another one I think that we should mention by name. Great character from the Clone Saga. What did we think about Green Goblin being like the main bad guy, the one behind it all? Do you think that was a good choice? I was disappointed because I wasn't aware how it was going to end at all. I didn't know that Ben Riley was even going to die. And so for it to be like, oh, well, Ben Riley's dead. Oh, and, you know, this whole thing was actually Green Goblin. I was like, what? No, because I love Ben Riley and, and I love the Jackal being this mastermind. And it was disappointing to me. I'm not saying it was the wrong decision, but I was disappointed with it. So you would have rather had the Jackal be the mastermind still? Yes, and Scryer was another character in this story, and I, I felt like he he also turned out to not be what we thought, and I was okay with that one. But the Jackal, I felt so much had been built up around him to then at this point find out that he's not the mastermind. It was like, oh, so this guy who's so insane and smart and just so insane turns out to just be a crazy lackey. And so it... it took him down a peg for me. What about you, Matt Blaine? Looking at the history of the characters prior to this, Norman Osborn wasn't the master manipulator before this story. When he found out that Spider-Man was Peter Parker, he didn't pull strings in the background like the Kingpin did to Daredevil during Born Again. He grabbed his girlfriend and dropped her off a bridge. <laughs> right? He, yeah. Green Goblin, he protected himself in terms of keeping his identity secret better and longer than the rest of the guys. But he was not one for subtlety. The only villain that Spider-Man had faced up to this point who had proven himself to be content to pull things and, or pull strings from the background and not put him himself face forward is Dr. Octopus, and they killed him off right at the beginning. So I would have actually thought that would have been the nice return for him, to have him return as the guy manipulating it, saying, oh yeah, I faked my own death because I had so many plates in the air here or so many balls in the air. I needed to focus on those. I needed you to stop looking at me so I didn't have to worry about watching my own back, right? And just go into a corner. So, I mean, we're talking about the master planner arc in Amazing Spider-Man when you don't know it's Dr. Octopus for, what, two of the three issues? He's the one that had the history of working in their suspect, or again, Kingpin, who originated as the Spider-Man villain, right? Before Frank Miller got his hands on him and he figured out how to make him work for Daredevil far better than he'd ever worked for Spider-Man. But again, this is... You know, as we said, Daredevil 354 is in this collection. It would have been tough to use the Kingpin after the fall of the Kingpin story in Daredevil, ran, which ran from uh, 297 to 300. Using the Kingpin here would have meant making him the returning character. But again, he's a character from Spider-Man's past who has proven himself to be using this style of manipulating things in the background, although he uses more political power than scientific acumen, so he wouldn't... Yeah, to pull off the clone saga you need someone who thinks in sci-fi terms yeah and to to me that's with spider-man's villains yeah you're looking at your green goblin your doctor octopus and your jackal those are the guys who've already been established as, as having the scientific acumen and of those three doc ock is the one who has the history with peter of that would make him want to screw with the guy like i mean the jackal and peter had history but that was more the jackal's history was with gwen stacy and peter came along with it so I think that Doc Ock would have made more sense to be the the big villain in this piece. What about you, Matt? I, I think I agree with Blaine. Uh, Doc Ock would have been my second choice. Well, if not for the Green Goblin, I would have liked Doc Ock. But 
about midway through when we see his death, like that that's a good stretch of issues that were actually pretty good. I thought it was pretty well done. You get to that final issue and it's it's all Green Goblin. It it hooked me. I you know, he had that five years to plan when this is the resurrection of Green Goblin. So he's had that five years to plan and, you know, it's all come to fruition. It I thought that last issue really did the trick. And I know they tried to wrap it up pretty quick, but I feel like they did it. I feel like they pulled it off. Yeah, that's a great, great argument. I, I, like I said, I don't think that it was the wrong decision, but just me personally, I was disappointed with it. And if I let myself, I think that's a great idea. But it's just at that time, Jackal meant so much to me, so I was really disappointed. I believe leaves us just looking for the the deeper meanings in the story. So, are there any? Like I said, this is the section that I've outright stolen from the Mission Log podcast. And if you're a Star Trek fan, you owe it to yourself to give them a listen. If you're not a Star Trek fan, I would check them out anyway, because they're actually doing a great podcast. But check, are there any morals, meanings, or messages that we can pull out of this? And I think there is. I think a lot of this whole clone saga speaks to self-worth and sense of identity. And it's who cares where you came from and how you got here. You are who you choose to be. Exactly. Yes. And like I said, it didn't matter who was technically the clone. I feel like that's a big part of the message it's like it doesn't matter you know if you find out that your parents are your adoptive parents or you know any other like huge revelatory event that can happen in your life it doesn't actually change who you are you are who you make yourself i think that's i mean i agree with y'all that's the biggest message and one thing that i was really happy about was when ben riley kind of inserted himself into peter and mary jane's life he wasn't after mary jane Mary Jane didn't have any points where, oh, Peter's gone, you know, maybe I'll get close to Ben, you know, romantically. That never crossed anyone's mind. Nowadays, I feel like that's the shortcut that they would have went to. But from the very beginning through the whole way, you know, Peter is Mary Jane's husband, and that's that doesn't change. But Peter Parker and Ben Riley were truly brothers in that sense. Yeah, yeah, they did have a, a strong relationship, much better than either of them had with, say, Kane or Spider-Side. <laughs> or any of the nameless clones for maximum clonage. So it could speak a bit to nature versus nurture as well. I know that's sort of a long-running debate. Yeah, Kane being a great example of that. Kane and Ben Riley had a fairly similar history. They were clones and found out they were clones and went off to make a life of their own, except for Kane had history with the Jackal for a while before that. But really, they spent they both spent five years on their own, just trying to sort of find themselves, and they took completely 100% different paths. Yeah, I think I think that's a good argument from nature versus nurture. Yeah, I think, I mean, well, part of the backstory for Kane is it's not until the deformity showed up during the deterioration that he really started to get twisted and become evil, which you could see as a reflection on Peter Parker's character in terms of what happens if he's ever disfigured. Part of me was thinking, so if Peter had been on the team in Fantastic Four or 500 and Doom had gone after him instead, what would Peter have done differently than Reed when Doom disfigured him? Yeah. But, yeah, that's it for... That's a running theme through this whole thing is you define who you are. We've got, actually, you know, a potential love interest for Ben Riley is the daughter of the burglar that killed Uncle Ben. Yeah. And we see her immediate judgments of Spider-Man based on her understanding of what happened that she gained through her father, who was not necessarily telling her the truth. We've got struggles for identity but for from both Peter and Ben. And each is telling the other, oh yeah, you can do this, you can handle it. But they're both saying, well, I am a clone, does anyone deserve better? And they both come to accept each other for who they are, and they accept themselves during the period when they each think they are the clone. You know, we get in the death of Aunt May. That's actually one of the highlights of this entire series, whether you like Aunt May or not, the way she goes out and she says, you know, by the way, I, Peter, I know you're Spider-Man and I support you because I know what kind of man you are. That was a pretty poignant send-off there. Send-off and actually a kick-off to the story. Yeah. So of, of all the times that Aunt May has died, that one's probably the best one. <laughs> There's also the, the Gwen Stacy clone in this that uh, completely rewrote another person's life. And that goes along with the same identity thing, how how fragile somebody's identity is. is there is this woman who was just living her life, and then the next day, she is now the clone of Gwen Stacy, 
and she lives as Gwen Stacy for years until the High Evolutionary is like, hey, actually, you know, you're not Gwen Stacy, you're this person, and then it all just shatters again. Yeah, there's a lot where they said, oh no, what we all those secrets we just revealed, that was a load of uh, bullocks, and here's the real <laughs> secret, and that's part of it. But so, is there, are there any other messages aside from self definition and self worth? Anything you guys picked up on that I missed? Uh, I think that sums it up pretty well. The unreliable narrator, I thought, was also a, a good theme in this, is that, like you said just a second ago, every single thing you know can be a lie. And that sort of ties back into identity and, and to, you know, what does it matter if it's a lie? But that everything you know could easily be a lie. And it happens several times. Everything you know is a lie in, in this comic. Okay, so any final thoughts before we wrap up here? I approve. I still like it. I mean, I, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel at the end of this, but I'm, I'm glad I went back. I'm glad I read it. I'm glad I read it, too, because it is, as I said, it's better than its reputation indicates. And it is definitely a better read in the trade paperback version than it is just reading the Amazing Spider-Man pieces. <laughs> With part three of this story, part seven of the next story, and then part two of the one after that. And that, I think, is it's really and truly the biggest fault of the series is you'd have a four-issue arc. But it'd be divided up, you know, one issue per Spider-Man title. And everyone's motives change depending on the writer. It just, the inconsistency. Yeah, inconsistency yeah. is the greatest flaw of, of this series. Yeah. Yeah, had it been, well, I guess, a 13, no, a 12-year monthly cycle story where it's all one title. <laughs> they could have cleaned that up, but I don't know if people could have, if this could have lasted for 12 years. And it would have been shorter because some of this, these 165 issues are the one shots of the miniseries running in parallel and the seven issues of New Warriors. Because part of what this is in choosing what to collect here, it feels like they did everything that was leading up to the Clone Saga. But almost it's it's as though they said, okay, let's find every appearance of Ben Riley and put those together in a readable order. Yeah, that's what my uh, collection is. It's literally just every appearance of Ben Riley chronologically, with some extras. We even have a team-up with Gambit and Howard the Duck. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and one of those team-up issues, and team-ups with the Fantastic Four. And and then again, most of those Marvel team-up issues, they're not really part of the bigger picture. It's just, oh, here's another Ben Riley story, so we'll give it to them. Yeah. Which makes sense in the complete Ben Riley epic portion of the trade paperbacks. But this is one, I wouldn't say rush out and get it, especially because of the sheer volume of it. But if you're tempted to check it out, check it out. There's enough here to enjoy if you're coming in with an open mind that's worthwhile. If you haven't read it in a while, but you've got it buried in a long box somewhere, dig it out and come back with fresh eyes. Because there's stuff worth watching here. My warning has always been, if you're interested in it, I can't suggest it highly enough. Don't read it until you're ready to read it. Don't read it until you're ready to experience just the the complexity, the, the ridiculousness of it, and wait to read it until you can read it. In, in bulk, and you can read most of it rather than, like you did, just the Amazing Spider-Mans of it. Yeah, because that's... Even if they had all four of the ongoings in there, we still would have been missing pieces from the month where all the books were retitled Scarlet Spider, from all those one-shots and tie-ins. Like, Maximum Clonage, even though I'm clearly not a fan of that particular story, it would be worse if you didn't read Alpha and Omega to start and end it as those one-shots. There's pieces you just gotta have. You know, it's nice to read the New Warriors issues for when the New Warriors show up in the Spider-Man books, because it's all related. Yeah. Anyway, all right, so if there's no other closing thoughts from you guys... Did we did we do it? I think we went the entire time without talking about the Spider-Baby. Spider-Baby? I mean, we mentioned the pregnancy, but we didn't really... Do we want to touch on that at all? I don't mind. Yeah, that was... That's part of the, the last story arc, when they were wrapping it up and trying to have sort of their young-feeling Peter Parker. They actually... Had Norman Osborn sent one of his lackeys to cause an abortion. And, well, actually it was Mary Jane had a stillbirth, I guess, rather than abortion. And the stillbirth, stillbirth was stolen at that, I might add. And how that didn't really seem to come into play. The abortion didn't really seem to come into play too much in those direct issues as much as it should have, in my opinion. And also the fact that it was stolen that also didn't really seem to play as big of a role as I thought it should have. Yeah, that does down the road, but it's well after the Clone Saga's over. Yeah. So if we're reading it just as the Clone Saga issues, we won't see that. But that's... Did you find out why it was stolen as part of a storyline where that is actually the red herring 
when they're bringing back May, which was what the baby was going to be named. Only in that story, they bring back Aunt May Parker and not Baby May Parker. Although Baby May, a.k.a. May Day, they did pick up on that in a what-if story by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends about what if the baby had survived, and that is the Spider-Girl, or MC2, ongoing series, which was actually the longest-running female-led Marvel series in history. Wow, that's incredible. Yep, she was the one that cleared over 100 issues. If you look at total issues, I think Carol Danvers may have her beat. If she doesn't yet, she's close, because Miss Marvel, Carol Danvers' original series, was 24 issues. Uh, She hit 50 with some specials and annuals thrown in in the Brian Reed era, and then we've got Kelly Sue DeConnick on it for the past couple of years. So she's got to be getting into the, the high 80s now. So I suspect Carol Danvers will overtake Mayday Parker, although she wouldn't have just yet. And even then, May Parker would probably... It looks like she's going to have the the numbered, so the longest-running continuous series, because the market has changed, and rebooting with major creative team shifts is par for the course these days. Even without it, look at the recent Daredevil reboot, when it went from issue 36 with one creative team to issue one with the same creative team. And Spider-Girl was one of those books that was always on the chopping block, and it was those dedicated fans that kept it alive. Yeah. In any event, I'm... If that's all we had to say about the Clone Saga itself, I'd like to thank you guys for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have you guys back again. Can't wait. And for those uh, reading along at home, well, (laughs) you've had quite the week cut out for you last week, and the next two aren't as heavy, but next week we've got the 12-issue Punisher Welcome Back Frank story, which is the Garth Ennis, Steve Dillon relaunch of the Punisher that started in the year 2000. That has been collected in hardcover and trade paperback form, although all of those collected editions are out of print. So not quite as hard to get your hands on as Essential Marvel 2-in-1 Annual number 7, but it's kind of close. And it's thankfully the last really hard to get issue on the list. And the week after that, we'll be looking at the 58-issue Chris Claremont run on New Mutants. So please remember to rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher. If you know someone else who may be interested in listening to the show, please, you know, ask them to check us out. And thank you for listening.